moving through the book of Exodus, we're looking at Moses and we're looking at the people of Israel. And just a real quick recap of where we've been. Uh, the nation of Israel, as you come to the book of Exodus, they're, they're slaves. There's probably anywhere between one and three million of the best guesses of, of them. Pharaoh was concerned that they were growing, becoming too big and powerful, so he begins to put the screws to them. And uh, their, their cry goes out to God. God calls Moses to go down. Moses says, I can't do it. Um, and he sends his brother with him, Moses. Uh, Aaron goes with him. They go down. We talked a couple weeks ago about the plagues. We said there were, there were ten plagues, and I talked about the first nine a little bit. And then we came to the tenth plague. We call that the Passover. And uh, uh, Nelson and Mark talked about the, the, uh, the tenth plague last weekend. And so uh, now time has passed. Pharaoh has allowed the people to leave Egypt. So the people of Israel, they walk, they leave uh, Egypt. And uh, for the first time, they're free. And they're being led by Moses. And they come to the first obstacle. The, the, they come to the, the Red Sea. And uh, now they have a problem because they have to cross it. But they have a bigger problem because there's a change of heart. The Pharaoh has a change of heart. And if you'd like to follow along uh, with me, and I would encourage you to do that, whether it's uh, this campus, uh, the Roshek campus, or uh, whether it's online, I'm going to be in Exodus chapter 14. Uh, let me read to you just a couple of verses there, and then we'll jump back into the text. But notice that the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, had a change of heart. Verse 5 of chapter 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go, and we have lost their services. So Pharaoh immediately sends out his army. And it's mentioned a couple of times, there's 600 chariots, which think of it in modern times as tanks, okay? This is, this is a, probably the most well-equipped army of its time in that day. And so they're a world power. And so not only are they come to the, the, the edge of the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Nile, uh, but they also have come to a place where uh, now they have an army pursuing them. And so they're kind of between a rock and a hard place, or in this case, water and a hard place, right? And so let's pick up the text. Uh, let me continue reading. And it, again, I'm going to pick up at verse 10 of chapter 14. And let's see what happens. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Did we say to you in Egypt, uh, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of God. You, uh, the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea and on dry land. I will harden the hearts 
of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, uh, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. Up the pillar also moved in front in from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies and Egypt, uh, the armies of Egypt and Israel. Uh, throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all the uh, all the night the Lord drove. Excuse me, all that night. The Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and the cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into the confusion. He jammed the wheels of the chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let us get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it. And the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back. And covered the chariots and the horsemen. The entire army of the Pharaoh that had flowed, <clears throat> the, uh, that, that had followed the Israelites into the sea. None of them survived, but the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians. The people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in Moses, His servant. So there's a few lessons we can draw from this. And we're going to talk about the text and we're going to talk about the lessons. The first lesson I want to point out, and if you have your notes, you can see this is the first point, that we're often blinded to what really enslaves us. You know, when the Israelites realized that they were by the Red Sea, and they couldn't cross. They didn't know how they were going to cross. And then they looked behind them and saw Pharaoh's army in hot pursuit of them. They began to panic. And notice what it said in the text. They said this to Moses. Was it because there, was no, there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? Have you, uh, done, what have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been, or been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So there's a, there's a lot of panicking. There's a lot of sarcasm. There's a lot of complaining. There's a lot of fear going on there. All these things are going on. They're panicking. They're thinking. They're not thinking right. And, and you know, you really can't blame them, uh, really, in a sense, because they're in a very difficult situation. They have forgotten, though, to, they have forgotten who is leading them, and they have forgotten where he's leading them. Too. Okay, uh, look at. <clears throat> oh, they make this comment too. They say um, this isn't what we wanted. We never really wanted to leave. We loved it in Egypt. Well, if you you go back to the tape in Exodus chapter four, let me read this to you. Exodus four twenty nine. 
This is when Moses and Aaron first come into Egypt and talk to the leaders of Israel. It says this in verse 29 of chapter 4, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And then notice what it says, And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Now that's a very, very different account than what they've just laid out here before (laughs) the Red Sea and the pursuing army, right? Uh, Their perception has been skewed. They're willing to go back to Egypt to live as slaves under Pharaoh. They think that life is better than what they're faced with right now. And so they begin to panic. They've forgotten a number of things. What have they forgotten? They had forgotten that the Lord had heard their cries and seen their misery. He heard their cries and he saw their misery and he sent a deliverer. He sent Moses and he sent Aaron. They, number two, they had forgotten the ten plagues. Remember the ten plagues? One plague after another, after another, after another, until it came to the final Passover plague. They had forgotten the plagues that this God is above all the gods of Egypt. They had forgotten the plagues. And then number three, they thought slavery in Egypt, submitting to the Pharaoh, was better than trusting God's plan for them. Now before we get too judgmental, of the Hebrew people, remember we do the same thing. We're often faced with a trial, a test, or a trouble in our lives, and what do we do? We panic. We panic. We forget the grace and the mercy and the blessings of God in our lives. We forget how He has saved us so many times in the past, how He's always come through, how He's always been faithful. We forget those times that He delivered us and how much He loves us. Now, here's, here's the problem with, with the Hebrew people, and here's the problem with us, I think. And this is where it goes deeply, hopefully, into our lives, and we think about how this passage can speak to our lives right now, today. We often think slavery is the problem before us or behind us. So Israel saw the problem as there's this, this ocean, there's this sea before us, or there's this army pursuing us. Those are the biggest problems I have in my life. That's the issue. If I could just be done with those two things, I would be okay. Uh, for us, we think it's our job, it's our health, it's our family, it's our finances, something. Uh, and maybe in your life right now, something isn't going well. You, maybe your health isn't going well, your family isn't going well, your job isn't going well. And you think, well, if that problem just went away, my finances, if those, if those would just clear up, then, then, then my life would be okay. But slavery isn't getting free from the challenges set before us. Freedom comes. And this is what the Bible says over and over. And it's, We understand it in our heads, but it's hard for us to grasp it in our hearts and our lives. Freedom comes when we allow God to walk with us in the good times and the bad. Now, what's interesting about this whole story, maybe you saw it there, was that God was leading them. Moses was leading them, but God was leading them through a cloud, right? And the Spirit of the Lord, you know, you see the Spirit of the Lord all through this. The Spirit of the Lord is doing things. So God is all around him, them. He's around Moses. He's around Aaron. He's around his people. He's around you and me. He's well aware of the problems. He knows what the problems are in front of you. He knows what the problems are behind you. And some of you say, my biggest problem is I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, this week. 
and I'm paralyzed by fear. Some of you, the biggest problem is I have a past that I just can't get rid of. There's things behind me that I just can't let go of. They haunt me. They trouble me. But what we forget is we forget, we've forgotten who's leading us and where he's leading us to. Let me give you an example. Uh, here, here's what I'm going to suggest. My, so, so essentially what Israel basically says, and they think they're taking the easy road. The easy road is go back to Egypt and remain slaves. Be, why? Because it's familiar. It's what I know. But they were crying out to God. They were in misery. They were struggling. Have you ever done that? Have you ever like looked back in your life and you go, oh man, I wish I could go back there. And then somebody quickly, you know, your wife or your kids or somebody, remind, or friend, reminds you, yeah, life wasn't really good back then. Let me tell you, remember this, remember this, remember this. And then all of a sudden you go, yeah, that's right. <laughs> now that you remind me. Uh, but the question is, what really enslaves you? We often think it's my job, it's my family, it's uh, relationships, it's my health, it's my finances, it's my career. It's something like one of those things. And we say, if that would clear up, then I would be okay. And, and what I'm going to suggest to you is this. That what really enslaves you isn't what's behind you, it isn't what's before you, it isn't what seems to be on the surface and apparent. Let me give you an example. I think a lot of us, if we were honest, would admit that we're enslaved by fear. I don't mean, in a sense, that everything that we see, we go, oh, you know, and I'm terrified of this. No, I'm ter- No, that's not what I'm talking about. We have a fear of rejection. We have a fear of failure. We have a fear of the unknown. And so what do we do? We have a desire to be accepted. We have a desire to be appreciated, to be loved by someone. We we want to uh, believe that our lives matter. We all want to be missed. So what do we do? See, the fear is that we won't be missed. The fear is we won't be liked. The fear is we won't be accepted. The fear is that what if I can't handle that? What if I, what if I can't handle what the, this, this, uh, this challenge before me? It's not the Red Sea, but I have this challenge before me this week. What am I going to do? And we fret about it. We fear about it. And it causes us health issues. It causes us all sorts of, uh, of issues. So what do we do? Well, in, a, in the area of acceptance, we often work hard at trying to find acceptance. We overachieve to prove our lives matter. We make ourselves useful. We become good at something. We try to make ourselves, uh, make ourselves, make our lives meaningful. We, we long for someone to affirm us and appreciate us and will many times compromise things in our lives just so we can be accepted by someone. Because we don't want to be rejected because we fear rejection. And all of, us, all of this causes us to misrepresent ourselves, to put up walls, to compensate Uh, to compromise our beliefs, to play games with people, to hide who we really are. Why? Because if, and and maybe this is the biggest fear that we all have, if people knew who I really am, they wouldn't like me, they wouldn't accept me, they would reject me. Fear isn't always that I'm afraid of this and I'm afraid of that. Fear Fear can go very deep into our hearts and into our lives. But we will go to incredible extremes not to experience fear. We will become, for instance, a slave to approval. 
we will compromise our beliefs so that we can be approved of. We will walk away from things that we believe firmly in our hearts just so we can be accepted. Here's the point I want you to see. There's only one master who can give us the love and approval we desperately need. And he's already shown us how much he loves us when he climbed up on a cross and gave his life for us. He says, I love you this much. You'll never need to know that you, you are affirmed or approved of. I affirm you. I approve of you. I call you my son. I call you my daughter. There'll never be anything that you'll ever do. And there'll be never be anything you'll ever think that will cause me to turn away from you because my father turned away from me instead of turning away from you. So, uh, but here's the point. We, like the Hebrew people, sometimes forget who's leading us and where he's taking us. We get into trouble when we focus on the chariots behind us or the sea before us. So what is the chariot and what is the sea in your life? What is the, the need, the fear that you have that if you are found out, if you aren't approved of, that your life will be over or you'll struggle? Because we all struggle with that. What I'm suggesting is, it's not your job, it's not your family, it's not your relationship, it's not your career. There's something deeper beneath that that is causing you to compromise your belief. It's causing you to, to live in fear. And I want to tell you something, that when you give yourself to someone or something other than God, they are evil taskmasters. And they will keep you enslaved. So that's the first thing I want you to see, that slavery isn't always as it appears. It isn't always the surface thing. There's something below the surface, and maybe you need to go below the surface and say, what is causing me to, to have this fear or need of approval, whatever it is? Secondly, we find our freedom as we exercise our faith. Notice what he says. Moses says this to the people. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord that the Lord will bring today. Uh, the Egyptians you see today, will, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Now, there's more to faith than just standing still. <laughs> we, we just got done recently going through the book of James. And James basically says... Your faith can't be a standing still faith. It needs to be an active, robust, live it out, make a difference, everyday faith. That's the way your faith needs to be. It needs to be an active faith. Anybody who doesn't have an active, living, robust faith must come to the conclusion that you have no faith or, as James says, your faith is dead. Faith is more than just standing around and crying out to God. There has to be a move. And God says this. It's very interesting. We're going to look at this a little bit. In the midst of the passage we just read, God says to Moses, he says, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea and dry ground. And he's saying, stop standing around and start moving. Take a, take a step of faith. One of the things that we tend to do is we say, I'm just going to pray about it. No, don't just pray about it. Pray about it, but take a step of faith. Don't just stand there. Moses and the people had to act on their faith. Faith is never a stationary event. Faith must also uh, often act. Well, how do we put our faith into action? That's what I want to 
spend the rest of our time talking about how do we place our faith into action. Because I, I think if I were to ask you to raise your hand uh, this weekend and, and say, hey, if, if you have faith, raise your hand. Most of us, I think all of us would say, yeah, I have faith. Fine. <laughs> what do you mean by that? How do, you, how, do you, how do you make your faith active? How do you put your faith into action? Let me give you three steps. Okay, three steps for that. Number one, the first step is this. You set your eyes on Jesus. You set your eyes on Jesus. Notice Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It says this. The writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Notice, fixing our eyes on Jesus. One translation says the author and finisher. This one says the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he entered, endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's what the enemy wants you to do in your life. The enemy wants you to look back and be paralyzed by your past. The enemy wants you to look forward and see all the problems, all the issues, all the, the insurmountable things that you cannot walk past, get past. The enemy wants you to be paralyzed. The enemy wants you to stand there in fear. That's what the enemy wants you to do. But here's what we have to do. We have to move past our fear and we have to remember who is leading us and where he's leading us to. Now, some of you know I ride a bike and I don't usually do mountain biking because uh, <clears throat> I don't want to get killed. Uh, but my, uh, my uh, brother-in-law likes to mountain bike. So whenever we get together, he generally says, hey, let's go mountain biking. So I do it. And there's you know, like rocks and trees and stuff like that. And, you know, you, you go into a tree or something like that, and you know, or fall off your bike. It's like, you know, when I was 16, that was fine. But I'm not 16 anymore. And when you fall off, you kind of feel it. And so um, one of the things that they like to do on mountain bike trails is they like to put these little um, <clears throat> very narrow pieces of wood where you're supposed to ride your bike on it and sometimes they're elevated off the ground, right? And so you start, you're riding on it and it may go from here to the, the door or it may, you know, it may go a short amount. It may be wider. But I, you know what? <clears throat> Here's what I found about those things. If you look down... You're going down. And I have. I mean, you, you do. You get on it. You look down and the next thing you know, eh, you know you're, you're going off and you go, okay, that didn't work well. What you have to do is you have to look ahead. Because, the, and people will tell you, in many sports, the body follows where you're looking. You look ahead and that's where you'll, your body will follow. When you look down, your body will fall. Okay, you want, you want to dump the bike here? Okay, we'll dump it right here, right? And so uh, there's a point there where, you're, where you fix your eyes. Are you fixing it on the sea in front of you or the chariots behind you? Or are you fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, who's already demonstrated his love for you, who has a plan and a purpose for you, who never leaves you and is always with you? 
It all depends on where you put your faith. Your, the enemy doesn't want you to put your faith on, uh, your eyes on. Your enemy is, it doesn't care whether you look at the problems in front of you or the problems behind you. The enemy just cares that the, your eyes aren't fixed on Jesus. That's all he cares about. If he does that, then he's got the victory. So that's the first one. Set your eyes on Jesus. Secondly, choose to obey what you already know. This is what uh, 1 John says, and it's a, a, a big part of uh, the whole uh, uh, epistle of 1 John, letter of 1 John. Uh, this is what he writes. This is 1 John chapter 5, verse 2. This is how we know that we, uh, we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out His commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep His commands and His commandments and not burdensome. So John basically says, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the characteristics, the basic characteristics of a follower of Jesus Christ is they obey His Man, Jesus said over and over, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And you don't do what I've called you to do. You can't be a disciple and not follow him in obedience. Okay? So the key observation is this. I have found that some Christians feel, and maybe you're here, you say, you know, Pastor, I'm just waiting because there's, there's this one thing I'm missing. It's Bible knowledge or experience or... I'm just waiting, like we just saw a thing on serving. You say, well, I'm ready to serve, but I don't have much experience. I don't know the Bible. There's always something, and the enemy likes to point out what you don't have. And, and so there's always something. But some Christians often feel like they're, they're lacking one thing they need before they can really get busy with God. If I just could get that, if I just had this, then, or when I get here, or when I get my life all figured out and I get my life together, really? You know, well, here's what I found. Can I, can I simplify the Christian life here just for a minute? The Christian life is very simple to understand. Here's what the Christian life is. You wake up every day, and you take your pulse, and you, I'm breathing, and I have a pulse. God has given me the gift of life today. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of life. You choose to live, uh, to love God first of all, most of all. And you try to connect with him daily. You, you spend a little bit of time in his word. It doesn't matter if it's in the morning or in the afternoon or in the evening. It really doesn't matter, but you spend some time with the Lord. You say, how, how is God going to speak into your life if you're not reading His Word, if you're not taking His Word in? So you wake up and you thank the Lord for the gift of life. You spend time with God. You, you uh, spend time with God and His people. If you have a family, love them. <laughs> it's not rocket science, like I said. If you have a, a spouse, love them. Forgive them serve them right if you have children love them serve them forgive them right that, that that's what god has has called you to do um again, quick side note and i feel compelled to do this um, i have five boys my youngest boy is 20 and my oldest is 32 33 he's had just got a birthday well he just had a birthday so we just celebrated anyway the point is this your kids don't need a friend they need a parent they don't need a buddy 
they need boundaries. And the boundaries need to be not too oppressive so that they have to clean their room so it's medically perfect every day to it's a pig pen. Uh, you basically, in other words, you set boundaries that are reasonable boundaries because here's what causes, the Bible says that fathers do not exasperate your children. And I think you exasperate your children in two ways. One is that you have so many rules and so many boundaries that you almost, they need a, like a dossier to carry all the rules. The other one is you don't have any. You can go to bed whenever you want. You can eat whatever you want. You can say and speak whatever you want. You, don't have, you can disrespect the, your mom, your dad, whenever you want. You can say whatever you want. We have no rules around here. And you know what? Kids need boundaries. And sometimes when you make boundaries and you enforce boundaries, kids don't like it. And they tell you that in sometimes not nice ways. But uh, sometimes you just need to say no. Now, hopefully you live in a, in, a, in a home where you try to say yes as often as you can, but there are some times where you just have to say no. And that's okay. They don't need a buddy. They need a parent. So be a parent if you have kids. All right, enough of the... So I've gone from preaching to meddling, right? Okay, so... So, wake up every day and thank the Lord for life. Spend time with the Lord. If you have a family, love your wife, love your uh, husband, love your spouse, love your kids if God has given you children. Be a good parent, be a good spouse, right? If you're a Christian, you should be part of a local Christian community, a church. And now here's the thing about this. Don't be a leech. Don't be a taker. Be a giver. Don't just say, what can you give me Say, what can I do to serve this local assembly? How can I connect with the bride of Christ, the church, and use my gifts and use my ability to serve this community with my time and my talent and my treasure? Don't just be a taker. Don't just be a consumer. Be a giver and get connected. You don't get connected just by coming on the weekend. You get connected by getting plugged into ministry and into small groups. And we plug life groups. We think those are the way to get connected. So, if you are employed, and you should be, if you can work, you should work. If you have a job, and you should, you should be the best employee the company has. You should show up on time, ready for work. You should be a hard worker, trustworthy, and honorable. You should be a good employee. <laughs> Even if your boss is bad, be a good employee. Be a good worker. If you are living in a neighborhood, be a good neighbor. Be a good person in the community. Don't have a bad reputation within the community. Don't get into trouble. Don't cause fights. Serve the community. Reach out to the poor, the marginalized, and the needy. If you're a citizen, be a good one. By the way, you are a citizen somewhere on this planet, wherever you're from. And if you're a United States citizen, be a good United States citizen.
But be, most of all, be a citizen of heaven. Realize that your loyalty is in heaven. That God called you to be a citizen of heaven and represent Jesus Christ and represent the gospel. So, you, you've seen, wake up, thank the Lord for life, spend time with God. If you have a family, love them. If you have a job, work hard. If you're in a neighborhood, be a good neighbor. Uh, you know, just do that every day. Then go to bed, get some rest, wake up, and do it all again. Day after day after day, week after week after week, month after month after month, year after year after year. That's the Christian life. Okay, that's what it is. You don't wake up and say, I'm going to save thousands of people today. No, 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 probably not. But you're going to wake up every day and you're going to thank God for life. You're going to spend time with God. You're going to love your family. You're going to be a good... You do all those things every day and you get a record of doing that. Of being a faithful, faithful, faithful Corinthian cobbler. Do you know what would happen if Christians started living that way? It would turn the world upside down. I said it's easy. But it's hard. Because we don't feel like it, do we? If Christ followers would live like this, though, we would turn the world upside down. Third point. So the first one is turn your eyes on Jesus. And the second point is live to the... Live to the obedience that you already know. Uh, put your, what you already know, just be obedient to what you already know. Okay? And then number three, start on the right path. Proverbs says this. There's a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. Now, if you, we just stop here and I get to pray, some of you may leave today and say, okay, I know what I need to do. I need to try harder. I need to work harder. I need to be better. I just got, I need, I need to be better. Stop being bad. Be good. Right? <laughs> right? You know, pump yourself up and be, no, no, no. You see, if you just try to follow the plan that I just laid out, you may find that you're on the wrong path. Because what you'll find is, I'm going to do all these things, and then one day I'm going to come to God and say, I was a good husband or wife, and I was a good father, and I was a good worker, and I was a good a citizen and I was a good neighbor and I deserve heaven. So let me in. Let me ask you a question. Think about how you would answer this. If I was just talking just to you right now, how would you answer this question? Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Some of you might, would answer and say, yes, I am. Some of you would answer this and say, I don't know, but I'm really trying hard. If you thought that, if you were thinking that, you absolutely do not understand the gospel. You don't understand the gospel. You don't understand what the New Testament teaches about how a person is made right with God. You don't understand that. And I, listen, I was in a, there was a time where if somebody had asked me that question, that's what I said. I don't know, but I'm working hard at it. Let me give you the answer to that. The minute that somebody says they're trying to be a Christian, they don't understand the gospel. You see, you don't, you don't try to be a Christian. 
Salvation comes through a decisive moment where you cross over, the Bible says, from death to life. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. He said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, you need living water. There needs to be a, a moment, a transforming moment in your life. Well, how does this happen? There's an interesting part in our passage, and I need to move along here real quick. Let me just give you the context, and we'll come to it shortly. You can write this reference down. Um, Exodus chapter 22. Um, but, but let me get to it. So Moses is standing there, and the people are complaining by the Red Sea, right? And um, God says to Moses, maybe you didn't catch this in the text, he says this. He says, don't, now I'm reading this, then I'm going to go to the passage I just told you, okay? This is the, from the passage we just read, all right? Moses says this, don't be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord, the, the Lord will bring today. The Egyptians, the Egyptians you will see today, will, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand. So the point is, Moses is being rebuked by God. If you read the Hebrew, it's a singular. He's saying, not why you, you people. He's you, Moses. Moses wasn't crying out. Moses wasn't complaining. Moses was trying to convince the people to stick with it and to move across. So Moses is rebuked even though it wasn't, he wasn't crying out to God. He gets to rebuke the people deserved. It says if he, in, as we read the text, it's if he has done what the people were doing. What is going on here? The sins of the people were being imputed or transferred to Moses. He gets the rebuke they deserve. Why? Because Moses is the mediator for the people of Israel. He is the one that goes between the people and God. God didn't speak directly to the people. He spoke to Moses who spoke to the people. Now we're going to see this principle illustrated as Moses leads the people. But I want to jump ahead to the passage I mentioned before, Exodus chapter 32. So here's what's going on here. It's very interesting. So Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's getting the law. He's getting the tablets with the Ten Commandments, five on each tablet, right? So he comes down off the mountain, and immediately he see, he, they approach the camp. He and Joshua approach the camp, and there's all this ruckus going on in the camp. They're out in the wilderness, okay? They've left Egypt, and time has passed. And now Moses comes down with the law. He's been up on the mountain for a while. And uh, they, the people have talked Aaron into making a golden calf that they can bow down and worship to. Moses walks into the camp. He sees the ruckus. He sees the golden calf. And he immediately is enraged. He throws the, the, two, uh, the two pieces of stone down, and they immediately break up. We're going to talk more about this so I don't have time to go into it. But essentially, Moses chastises the people. He deals with it. The next day, he goes up on the mountain and he talks with God. This is what God, this is what Moses says. This is what Moses says to God. Exodus chapter 32, verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin 
but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. Do you see what Moses is saying here? He's saying, don't destroy them. Don't judge them. Judge me. Let me take the punishment they deserve. I'm innocent. They deserve judgment. Spare them. Take my name. In other words, he's saying, just blot me out of life. Take my life away. Take eternity away from me. Moses is offering himself to God as a mediator for the people. He is offering his life for theirs. The Bible tells us that we have a mediator. In 1 Timothy, it says this. This is 1 Timothy 2. God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, for there is no one, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Jesus is the ultimate, the final Moses. He is the only one that can go before God and take the punishment that we deserve and be the sacrifice that we desperately need. He's the only one that can mediate between God and men. And so here's what I want to close with. You can't be your own mediator. Everyone in this room, listening online, whatever campus you're at, everyone needs a mediator. You can't do it for yourself. You need somebody to go between you and God. And Jesus did that for you. The question is, have you asked Him to come into your life and to be your Savior and your mediator? So you have to come to a place where you stop trying to save yourself and you realize that you need somebody who is willing to take the place that you deserve, take the punishment that you deserve, and, and give you life. And, and the Bible says that the moment that we call upon Jesus to be our Savior, our mediator, it says this in, in John 5. Jesus said this, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me as mediator doesn't say mediator, but it's the principle is there, has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. You cross over from death to life as you call upon Jesus Christ as Savior and mediator. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you ever done this? Notice I didn't ask you if, you if you are good, if you deserve it, if you've done enough, if you're doing enough. I've asked you simply this. Have you come to a place where you realize unless a mediator comes into my life, unless somebody takes my place, unless somebody takes the punishment, I'm dead. Have you called upon the Lord? Have you asked Jesus to be your Savior and mediator? He is the only path, the true path to true freedom. Because the greatest freedom that we need is not freedom from the armies behind us, the past, or the water before us, the present. It's not our career, it's not our family, it's not our relationship. The greatest, the greatest slavery that we suffer is the slavery of sin and death and guilt. And when we call upon the Lord, 
He takes all of those on the cross for us. And he says these words, it is finished. Do you know him as Savior and Mediator? If not, why not ask him to come into your life today and save you? He will. Let me pray with you. So, Father, help us. Help us to really understand what's taking place and how Moses has become the mediator that we all needed. But not Moses, Jesus. Moses is a picture of the final, ultimate mediator. And he has, Jesus has come and provided the path to God. He is the one who has gone before us. He is the one who was blotted out so that our name could be written. He was the one who was forgotten so that we could be remembered. He was the one who lost his life so that we could gain our lives. Father, if there's anyone here, whether it's in this room or on the other, one of the other campuses or listening online who has never called upon the Lord, might today be the day they say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I'm lost. And I ask you to come into my life to save me, to be my mediator, my savior. And Father, if they pray that prayer, I pray to let somebody know because they have crossed from death to life. For the rest of us, Father, who may have prayed that prayer recently or a long time ago, help us to remember that we can go back to our old slave master very easily. Help us to remember that there's something beneath the surface of those issues that we think are keeping us in slavery. There's something deeper going on, and most of the time it comes that we have stopped looking to Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the encouragement we get from your word. May it go deep into our hearts and produce a crop that is just a blessing to you and good for us. Pray this in Jesus' name.